You're listening to The Mix Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. And my professors admonition constantly that you don't know if a design works until you put a human being into it, whether in a drawing or a scale figure in a model, and you think about how people will inhabit that space. And so that idea of functional design, making things work better, centered around and scales around the human inhabitants of the system, really came out of my youth and out of architecture. Hello, I'm Eric Pawlowski, founder of MEX, and that was Eric Kim, my guest on today's show. Talking about some of his career journey, uh, which saw him develop this early interest in architecture and how things work, and then on into graphic design and on into working with early web technologies via degree in Harvard in visual and environmental studies. Until these days, he's VP of design and one of the co-founders at a company called Modo Labs, which is a spin-out of MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology and which is doing some pretty interesting stuff, helping colleges and big organizations deliver these rich cross-platform mobile services to support their campus communities. So Eric and I met quite some years back, 2010, I think, when Modo Labs was just starting out, and he came to one of our MEX conferences in London. And it's been a really interesting journey to follow. On the one hand, Modo itself has flourished. They're now serving 300 plus customers, including like some of the most well-known colleges in the US, some of the largest corporations. uh, And they've been pretty well backed by several prominent VC firms. And alongside this, Eric's role as a co-founder with a design background has played an important part in shaping the culture of the company, you know, growing a design team, finding ways for user-centered design to have a lasting impact within the organization as it goes through all of the usual growing pains of startups. So we talk about all that. We reminisce a little bit about the days when mobile experience design was a little bit more diverse than just iOS and Android. Uh, and we get into some of the specific challenges of running a small design team with Big ambitions. Hope you enjoy. Here we go. Eric, welcome to the podcast and thank you for taking the time to join me today. Now, uh, I'm curious, whereabouts are you dialing in from? Because we have people join the podcast from all over the world, uh, remoting in to do the recording. Whereabouts are you today? Sure. I'm in the Cambridge on the other side of the pond, Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, just north of Harvard. I see. And this is where um, you guys are based for your startup as well, as I understand. Correct. Yeah. We incubated on the other side of, of uh, Cambridge near MIT, and then we found our permanent location here about six years ago at the north end of uh, north end of cambridge right and has that area always been home for you because i know it's a big area for for tech these days but has this always been where you've you've been based yeah we've always been in cambridge the uh, core team incubated originally at at mit we were the mit mobile platform architecture team uh, from 2007 through 2010 and then we launched uh, spun out and launched Moto Labs in 2010 but we've always been based in cambridge well i guess we should jump into a little bit of that story. Now, Modo Labs, um, I guess people will know primarily these days for the work that you do in education and healthcare and, and enterprise applications. But you're saying originally it was a spin out from, from MIT. That's right. Yeah. So the Modo story begins at MIT in 2007, 2008. Um, our original founder, Andrew Yu, had been hired as MIT's first mobile platform architect. And every year the institute invests a large amount of money in some technology initiative they think will be of strategic value to the whole organization. And that year it was mobile. And so we were we were kind of in the midst of a mobile device explosion in popularity and diversity. In many ways, we had much more diversity then than we do now. You know, the iPhone had just been launched, but it launched into a world dominated by BlackBerry, Palm OS, Windows Mobile, Symbian, various flavors of Symbian, endless variety of Java brew power devices, uh, flip phones, and so on. And Android was launching at about the same time as well. And there are, you know, a bunch of other parties, big and small, trying to establish 
their own mobile operating systems, form factors, ecosystems. So uh, looking back, I think of it kind of as the Cambrian explosion of mobile technologies, um, since which time, for better or worse, pretty much everyone besides Apple and Android basically went extinct. And evolutionary convergence has given us this uh, endless array of blank slabs of glass. Um, But anyways, in the early days, um, the team was chartered with creating not just a product, but a a platform that would aggregate content and services from all around MIT and make it available on the whole range of devices people were using on campus at the time. Everything from Motorola Razors and other flip phones to, again, Blackberry's Palm OS and and the brand new iPhone, and give them access on those mobile devices to a broad range of information and services just to help them do day-to-day life better. And so, uh, we open sourced that under the MIT uh, open source license, and immediately there was a lot of interest from all around the world, higher ed primarily. But you know, we had odd companies like uh, we found out Barilla Pasta in Italy was using our framework, and Jet Propulsion Laboratories out in California. And so we saw this huge market demand for this type of technology that would aggregate content and services and make it available in an adaptive way for different types of mobile devices. And uh, so with MIT's blessings, we spun out to commercialize it and found Motor Labs. How interesting. So, I mean, how important was that decision to open source the platform there in terms of getting that understanding for where the demand was and, and how it might be out, applied outside of the, the immediate context of the MIT campus? It was tremendously important to uh, kind of one of the uh, original founding principles of the company and the unofficial motto of a lot of our original founders was make mobile awesome for everyone. And there was this realization that mobile was going to be tremendously transformative for the way people communicate and live and work and play and so on. Um, But that doing mobile across this broad range of different uh, devices and form factors and operating systems was going to be prohibitively difficult for most organizations, including those that might benefit the most from it. So we saw that playing out at MIT, and we knew very concretely what MIT's ranges, range of needs was and what sort of systems we needed to connect our, our technology to. But we were you know, modest enough to know that we had really only a glimpse at what sort of the patterns of use and the patterns of the types of systems that people would want to connect to and the the sorts of experiences a a broader ranging technology would would need to be able to facilitate. So open sourcing and putting in as many hands as possible early on was very important to the technology. And then, of course, when we spun out to form out a lapse to informed decisions we made as a company about how to take a pattern-based approach to our technology and the, the sorts of, again, the sorts of experiences that it would empower uh, that would meet a broad range of needs outside of not just MIT, but outside of higher ed eventually as well. So that's uh, an interesting word that you use there in relation to that that original goal for for Modo Labs to to make mobile awesome for for everyone. <laughs> you know that, that's quite right. a bold statement, I guess, to, for a, a startup to come into the the world with. But I, I'm a little bit curious as to what it meant for for you because you've come from. I guess a background uh, in design, really. You know, starting out mm-hmm. in in the world as a, a graphic designer, was awesome and good design always part of the same track within Modo? Was that where you hoped to make the the strides in in getting towards that goal of of making mobile awesome for all your users? Yeah, and uh, you know, we uh, it's it's the sort of rallying cry that founders love, and it sort of. It, tugs at your gut and emotionally mobilizes you and uh, and uh, and centers you as a team. But for me as a designer, it was a tremendous privilege to be part of the team. And we were unusual in that, you know, to have me as a designer as one of the principals and founders and as a, a board member for the first six years of the company as well. Um, it's still relatively rare for a technology startup to start with a designer as one of the principals. It's becoming more common in the past six or seven years. But at, at when we launched, it was still relatively a new thing. Um, I come from a, a, a fairly diverse uh, design and creative background, and the opportunity to work on a technology that was so intimately personal and so ever-present, but yet expressed itself in such a diversity of form factors and interaction patterns that were still relatively new in the world when we the, the team first got together in 2007, 2008. Um, tremendous opportunity, tremendous challenge, and got to really like and trust the team. And so it was an easy decision to to join the startup team when we spun out. So if we go back even a little bit further to when you first got involved in the world of, of design, what was the state of technology there? And when did you first <laughs> start to see 
digital platforms and the work that you're doing in graphic design as things converging together because I, th- I think you're absolutely right it, it is still quite unusual for startups uh, to have a designer as the principal that's changing and that, that's probably a, a good thing as you say but um, uh, you know I'm, I'm curious as to you know what that felt like way back because these days you know it's becoming a little bit more of an accepted path but uh you know i'm guessing when you started out those two worlds if you like of of graphic design and digital uh, were not nearly as as integrated and merged as they are today yeah that's a fair assessment and i think the reason why it made sense to me and why this path has, has unfolded in the way it has for me goes back to kind of my interests and how i got into design and the sort of design that i most enjoy and most find most rewarding and I, you know, since I was a, a kid, I've always been fascinated, not so much with how things look, but how things work and why some things work well and others don't and how things can be made to work better. I remember as a early, as a young teen sitting in my parents' car before I could even drive, just thinking for hours for about, you know, why this knob here, why this lever felt that way. Wouldn't this be better if you could see it without having to move your head? And, you know, I think about it now as, as a pretty odd kid. But it was always that kind of functional thinking about why do things work well and why do some things not work well and how can they be made to work better. So when I got to college, um, I studied design. My department was called uh, Visual and Environmental Studies because I went to a school that was uh, adamantly non-pre-professional, but uh, it was my concentration was architecture and graphic design. And actually, I didn't start out at focusing on graphic design. I, I started out focusing on architecture. And I, I loved everything about it. I loved learning about it, um, everything being designed for people at the human scale around how to facilitate and even inspire certain types of behaviors and interactions and even moods. And uh, this, the, the idea of design systems came out of my um, my study of architecture from Corbu's modular system to Japanese systems based on what they call a ken or the size of a tatami mat, everything around the human scale and my professors admonition constantly that you don't know if a design works until you put a human being into it, whether in a drawing or a scale figure in a model, and you think about how people will inhabit that space. And so that idea of functional design, making things work better, centered around and scaled around the human inhabitants of the system, really came out of my youth and out of architecture. But then I went and interned for an architecture firm, and uh, I saw it was kind of disillusioning in that you see what a brutally difficult um, and cynical profession that architecture as a professional practice can be for many people. And I know you had an, a, an earlier guest, Tim, on your show a while ago, and he followed kind of a similar path. I made my decision earlier than him uh, that having seen architecture as a profession that, you know, that's I, did, I don't think that I had quite the mix of personality traits to make that work for me. But it's I still amazing, love- actually, how common a story that seems to be in architecture. As you say, we, we had a, a previous guest on who spoke about that. And uh, separately, just in the last few months, you know, I've met uh, people outside of the, the work that I do with MEX working in the area of architecture who have all told very similar stories about the, the pressures and, you know, just what it means to be in the business of creating these kind of habitats, which are obviously of great importance to the, the customers that they're being delivered to and, and the pressures that that, that brings. Um, but perhaps, as you say, at the same time, a very valuable education, which you can then apply in other areas about the importance of systems and the connectivity between multiple different elements within a system and, and how users will will interact with that, whether you're talking about a, a series of buildings or uh, whether you're talking about a series of devices. I imagine there's a lot of transferable learning there. Absolutely. And I, th- I love the way you put that, where you're talking about systems and interconnections and sort of layers of the problem solving um, through different disciplines. And architecture more than many disciplines, uh, as a built uh, environment discipline, um, it, it, it by its nature has to bridge across many different sort of systems of thought and, and ways of thinking. Um, but uh, yeah, that's what, what I love about it. And again, that, that sense of human scale. And like you, I've met many people and I have old classmates and colleagues and friends over the years who went through architecture, got to the point of uh, being licensed as architects, maybe practiced for years, and then ended up branching out from that into other disciplines, um, other design disciplines. Uh, one does installation art, another has a cooking show, uh, another one, I've at least one friend who stayed in architecture, but they are 
are actually the minority among people I know who studied it at some point in the past. Yeah, it's but obviously that, the beginning of a pretty diverse path for, for a lot of people. It also reminds me, which I'm not sure if you uh, listened to that episode, but I spoke with Kwame Nyaning of uh, McKinsey a, a few months ago mm-hmm. on the podcast, and he didn't train as an architect, but had a, a real interest in architecture himself. And one of the things which he's taken from that world and applied to his practice around experience design now is the importance of uh, pattern languages and vocabulary. And he was saying that's one of the things that he learned from that discipline was the sense that if you can start to get people to understand things in a common language, it helps you interconnect all of the different components of a system, which obviously as an architect, you know, you're working with multiple different trades, multiple different disciplines to get towards an end result. Uh, and having that knowledge of the importance of a universal vocabulary, a way of getting all of those components to to communicate with each other during the build process is something which, uh, ironically, has become, I guess, incredibly important in in the area of of digital design these days. Absolutely. And everything from style guides to pattern libraries to uh, one of my friends is involved in the Pattern Lab project. Um, So pattern-based approaches to design, uh, both visual design and functional design and software, uh, hugely important and hugely transformative over the past several years, as you say. And, you know, some of those people have formal backgrounds in architecture, some don't. But I think it's that sort of systems thinking and human scale thinking and pattern based thinking that has informed a lot of different parts of our industry, I think, to our collective benefit. Um, yeah, but, but as I said, I decided against a career in architecture, but that sort of thinking has followed me. Um, through my entire career and informed decisions I've made and, and doors that have opened for me, um, going from traditional print design and, and packaging and promotion and identity design, which is where I really started my professional career, um, and then transforming that into web and interface uh, design to where I am now leading uh, all aspects of design for Moto Labs. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about what design means today for, for Modo. How do you structure your team currently uh, you know, in relation to both what you're doing day to day on the design side for the, the clients that you're working with, but also in terms of that sort of long-term vision for the, the overall product platform. Because I can imagine, you know, if it's anything like uh, a lot of the uh, the participants we have within the Mex community, there's always a bit of a balance to be struck between those two things. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, you know, as a small team within still a relatively small startup company, we're about 60 some full-time staff now. And of that, only four of us are designers. Um, so on my team, we have myself and we have a senior UX designer who's focused mostly on the customer facing tools by which our customers create and manage the applications built on our technology. I have a designer who actually works remotely for me from California, working on a lot of different visual aspects of the product and where the product meets the world, working with our services team and our solutions engineers to create great looking examples of what can be built with our product. We have a a go-to-market branch designer uh, who's a shared resource that kind of bridges the gap between my team and marketing, uh, who has uh, um, her purview is all the different visual design communications by which we communicate to the world, um, particularly before they become customers. And we have a motion graphic designer who's also on the marketing team and, and uh, who I, uh, I help manage. We're looking to hire another senior designer to work on the end user experience. So if anybody in your audience is uh, interested in working in mobile technology, mobile, mobile interface design, please come speak with me. Yeah, but we'll make sure we put a link in the show notes so people know where to contact you. That'd be great. Thanks, Merrick. Um, but beyond that, one thing that I love about the company and one thing that I have loved about teams I've worked with in the past in general and I've very uh, intentionally tried to foster here as we built up a team at Moto Labs is that the whole company is fairly multidisciplinary. Um, my coworkers come from a broad range of backends, which might be non-traditional for their respective professional disciplines today. The, our VP of uh, engineering actually is actually was studied architecture, found his way into IT and the net programming, and then came up to the ranks here to where he now lead, he leads that whole side of our organization. Um, we have people who have done um, like game design, went through the MIT Media Lab, um, have different aspects of uh, of design technology, and we have uh, our our platform architect was a deep, deep appreciation, a long-standing appreciation for usability and accessibility, making sure our products are are usable by people with different ranges of abilities. And those are the sorts of things in other places I've worked for or, or consulted for. 
um, you have to kind of fight for that awareness. But here we built a team where it's just kind of in the DNA to approach our products with a user in mind and with a multidisciplinary mindset. And how much of that do you think stems from the fact that you were on board from the outset as one of the co-founders and also a direct representative, if you like, for the value of design? Do you think that that's something which has helped to shape that importance of having the multidisciplinary awareness of design throughout the organization? Sure. I'd love to think so. I think that is a real part of it. Um, But I think also the people we had in the founding team were individually and collectively a fairly diverse group of people um, uh, who brought different sort of uh, problem-solving tool sets uh, to the task at hand. And so uh, it's one of the things, again, I, I really loved about the founding team and attracted me to being part of it. And so I think like kind of attracts like. Um, and so we've managed to build up a fairly diverse and, um, and interdisciplinary team here. And so within a team like that, I think a small group, whether it's design or some other discipline, uh, you know, I'll speak to the design team. We look not just at what can we do as a small group of individuals, but what can we do to make design a force multiplier? So to sort of infuse our way of thinking and our approaches to things to the thought processes and as they are embodied in the product as well to a large, much larger group's benefit than just what we can accomplish as a relatively small group within this company. Do you find the processes that you use for staying plugged into the insight about your users' behavior and, and lives and where that's going to guide your product direction varies depending on the industry it's coming from. Because I guess you have a, a strength, particularly around working with clients in academia and, and you know, large universities, but I know you also do things in health and with now large enterprise organizations as well. Is there a variation between how the, the user feedback, the user insight comes from those uh, different types of industries that you work with? Uh, the biggest difference uh, I've seen is that higher ed, unlike any other industry I've ever ever worked with, is gen- genuinely collaborative, and they like to share ideas not just within their organization, but with their peer organizations. And uh, lots of people and lots of industries like to talk about it, but higher ed really lives that out. And we see that at conferences that we attend, and also we host an annual uh, conference called the Krogo Conference about mobile technology and higher ed. And uh, the freedom with which People share their ideas and even, you know, code libraries and, and best practices with one another. And the, the hunger with which people want to learn from other peer organizations is unlike anything I've seen in uh, uh, any other industry. So a practical uh, implication of that is we have a, a, a part of our support center where people, customers can submit ideas to improve the product. And for our higher ed customers, those ideas are public where every other customer can see who suggested what and when and who's voted up uh, certain ideas because they want to share collaboratively in that way. And we have a monthly conference call for the higher ed community who use our technologies. In enterprise, we get feedback from individual customers, but in general, because that feedback is often specific to how they're using our technology, which is often in proprietary ways or in in closed settings, um, they are more reticent about sharing those those questions and those ideas with their peer organizations. So, uh, in some ways, you know, it enables a kind of ongoing process of of co creation, really, with your your clients in the world of of higher ed. Uh, are there any particular features in the product which have emerged from that that you feel are a particularly good, you know, representation or example of that process? Sure, there are <clears throat> quite a few ideas that have come from one or a small set of of institutions and that once it becomes shared, the idea becomes shared, lots of other people express, hey, we would love that too. Here's our ideas on how to make it better. And then that becomes productized eventually. One small example is uh, MIT, um, their users wanted in the shuttle tracking uh, module where you can see the real-time location and schedule for different uh, shuttles running routes around campus. They wanted to be able to set an alarm. So remind me five minutes before that bus comes to this stop and I'll get a, a notification on my device. So event, originally that was something that we built as a one-off for MIT with some refinement and conversation with a few other higher ed customers that became part of our productized offering that anybody with a compatible backend service uh, can integrate into their app now. And I mean, how much does it vary from client to client in terms of 
you know, how much they themselves are creating with the platform. Because my understanding of, of the Moda Labs platform is that it's certainly possible for your clients to do a lot of the creating of these services and the implementation of them themselves versus how much you do in, I guess, like a professional services capacity mm-hmm. on their behalf. How does that split between your, your typical clients? Um, I would say in the past, the majority of our customers looked to us to do a lot of the implementation and design work for them. Over time, the uh, strong push has been to encourage our customers to do more and more for themselves. We find that not only does that lead to more meaningfully individuated apps that end up in the user's hands, but also a greater sense of ownership on the part of the institution for the experiences that they are creating for themselves. Um, that, uh, That leads to more success in the long run, both in terms of it is an app that is more meaningfully suited to the particular needs of a population of an organization or community. And uh, also when you have people on the ground invested in the ongoing creation and curation and, and upgrades uh, to their mobile experiences, it's a better long-term business prospect as well because they're engaged and they, they're seeing the value they're getting out of the product and they want to keep investing in it. And so uh, a lot of the focus uh, and investment we've made on the app creation tools on our side are all about kind of the, the delegatability of different people being able to own different pieces of of uh, creating and continuing to grow the application um, using our technology. So has that changed the challenge for you and your design team, you know, going from that world where you were delivering things in a professional services capacity to concentrating on the usability of the the creative tools? Very much. That's a great question. I would say in the first year of the company, we did almost entirely consultative services. And my role as designer was very much creating these very bespoke experiences for a particular customer for a particular need. And then over time, we very intentionally with the, uh, the plan for the trajectory of the company from the beginning was to create a product company, a software product company, where we would create tools whereby the customers could uh, create their own experiences. So we went from being with a design focus on the bespoke individual experiences to creating the tools for creators whereby they could create the experiences most meaningful to their constituents. And it's a very, very different design challenge. It's, it's not a, a one-off. What can I do to, to handcraft this particular experience uh, with the ultimate finesse uh, um, and uh, in, in a way completely tailored to that set of needs in that population, but um, uh, creating a tool for other people to use is a very, very different design challenge. Yeah, I mean, in, in some ways, I feel it's one of the most challenging, but also potentially one of the most rewarding areas of experience design, you know, being in the business of developing creative tools, which others can then go off and use to create things for themselves. If you get that right and you empower people, it can be a, a really compelling thing uh, that you put into their hands. And often you get then that joy of being able to see a whole bunch of stuff being created, which maybe you didn't anticipate. But as a an experience design challenge to make sure that those tools are accessible and usable and easy for people to pick up and yet still have enough power for them to do interesting things, that's a really tricky balance to, to strike, which I think to some degree all people who are working in this area of, of developing creative tools face. You're right, and it is fantastically rewarding. It is, it is one of the most rewarding things about my job. It can be one of the most frustrating when you see people using the tool at a fraction of its capability. But when people do the unexpected with your tool, I never thought of using it to create that sort of thing. Um, that is tremendously rewarding for me. And uh, one, one great example of that is last year we had a series of what we called apathons at college campuses around the country where we invited student teams to come in, mostly non-developers, non-CS majors, to come in and uh, and over a weekend get trained on our product, conceive of some sort of mobile experience that would benefit their community, build it in our product, and then submit it for judging and awards. And uh, in the case of the winning team at Harvard, they met together on a Friday. They had never met each other before. They got trained on the product with an hour of training. They conceived and built it on a Saturday, and they went on to win the national award, which came with a fairly sizable uh, monetary prize. And Harvard recently released that as an official app, and it's about mental uh, and emotional health and safety and wellness on campus. And it's from the perspective of students for students, and it's not a use case that we would have thought of or, or tried to productize on our own, but they built it themselves for people like them for their peers and it was that was tremendously rewarding uh, 
uh, to see that come to fruition. Well, what a great result. You know, I guess it goes yeah. to show the value of, of getting the tools into the hands of people for whom the issues are, are most important and uh, are closest to those issues. So they're best able to, to understand them, to, to be able to see, you know, what is, is necessary to develop in response to that. Exactly right. And it gets back to that original sort of democratizing rallying cry, make mobile awesome for everyone. It's put these tools in everyone's hands so that they can go to create things for each other, for their own communities in ways that we could never conceive of ourselves. So the, the mobile part of that is also something that I, I wanted to talk about, because obviously that's where mechs very much originated as well, was in that world of, of mobile user experience. And while our conversations these days tend to be quite a bit broader than that, you know, I think there's there's still that fascination around how uh, context changes in the mobile environment and some of the unique capabilities that these mobile devices bring to what you can do with experience design. And I'm interested in how, you know, as a team at Modo Labs, you keep track of that. You know, how do you look out for the next interesting thing that's going to be possible in mobile user experience? Because presumably what you can do with the platform today is far in excess of what you were able to do in, in 2010. But there must be a, a, a sort of filtering or sorting process to decide which of those new platform level capabilities within the different devices you, you focus on and, and you decide to enable within your own platform. Right. Yeah. So I would say that there's been a lot of maturation and consolidation in the industry. Like I said, when we got started as a team was that kind of evolutionary explosion in diversity of what was possible and what people were exploring uh, technologically in mobile technology. And there's been a real consolidation and maturation. And now there's a lot of kind of generational iterative change year by year in iOS and Android and largely just in, in those two areas. As you say, the technology landscape is, is, is broadening beyond just the, what we think of now as the traditional mobile platforms of smartphone and, and tablet. Um, and those conversations at the periphery of what technologies are, are making possible are very, very interesting. We at Moto Labs remain fairly uh, consistently invested in smartphone and tablet and, and multi-form factor across a desktop PC as well now. Um, uh, but uh, not venturing very much yet into wearables and things like that. But, you know, in terms of uh, how we keep track of uh, what's going on in the industry and, and trends and technologies coming up, a lot of it's just, you know, just um, being plugged into the various developer communities. Um, we have a great relationship uh, with Apple, for instance, and, and the Apple developer community. A lot of it is just through direct uh, observation. In the early days, I would literally spend hours and hours out in the MIT quad or out in the, in the middle of a, a Harvard Square just watching people walk by and how they are physically interacting with their devices. And I know you, America, a lot of your writing is springs from your observations of just being out in the real world, watching people uh, interact with technology through conversation with our peers and with our typical users, through experimentation and user testing. And uh, from the early days, um, we did a lot of user testing and usability testing at, at MIT, particularly when things that had become entrenched as patterns in our technology now, we were still just figuring out from first principles. Do you think that focus, that, that very early focus on usability and obviously your role being on board as a designer also had an influence when you came to talk to investors about the trajectory of Modo Labs, because I, I know you've had a couple of rounds of funding into the company, mm -hmm. and these days we're seeing you know, a bit more focus among the investment community on the importance of having designers within the founding team. Um, but you know, perhaps when you were going for these investment rounds, uh, that wasn't quite the case yet. What was your experience with that? Uh, we were fortunate enough to have uh, investors who did value that and saw the value of having a founding member who was very focused on the user and and frankly the whole team as a team um, kind of culturally focused on the end user experience and a fundamental tenet of the technology was leave no user behind even if in the early days if they were on a uh, a, a dinky feature phone a flip phone like a motorola razor that we would still put a meaningful experience that was functionally equivalent to what an iphone user could get in a way that was adapted for um, for the user on the low-end device. And that sort of focus on meeting users where they are really infused the whole team from the beginning. It went beyond just me. Uh, I like to think that I played a pivotal part in that and that, that investors saw value in having a designer as a founding member, as a founding principal. But it, it really, I, I have to give credit to the whole team and our founding ethos. And was that something which carried through to when you were talking to your initial customers as well? You know, do you think that ability to be responsive 
to the, the needs of their users and to be able to show that focus on user-centered design was something which helped to get those initial customers on board. I think absolutely. And they might not have characterized it as such or, or worded it in that way. But when you put the devices in their hands and say, here's what a user would see on a Motorola Razor, on a, on a BlackBerry device, on a Palm OS device, on an iPhone or Android, and you see how the experience is meaningfully meets the user where they are on each of those devices, then we would talk to them, tell them stories about a day in the life of a student or a faculty member or a visitor. Here's how they're going to get this sort of information that they otherwise could not have gotten before on this device in a way that is contextually and experientially appropriate, not just for the physical form factor and the technological constraints, but the mental and behavioral and social context that define um, how so much of our mobile interactions uh, take place. Um, when we, when you tell those sorts of stories, it becomes obvious, even if you don't use the words user experience design and, and things like that and user-centered to design, it becomes obvious that we are putting a value on the end user's experience and how this facilitates their life as a member of the community in a way that other vendors just weren't talking about and clearly weren't investing in. And so I think, yeah, absolutely it was as implicitly or explicitly a compelling part of our story from the beginning and through to, to, through to Delta. Now, all this talk of uh, Blackberries and Palm <laughs> OS is making me a little nostalgic for you know, some of the, <laughs> the origins of um, where, where we've come from with the, the MEX initiative. But I'm mm. interested, you know, from your perspective, um, if you're ever a, a user of uh, those devices back in the, the early days and whether you feel uh, that there are some things which have disappeared from the world of, of mobile experience design as those platforms have kind of faded away that maybe you wish would come back or um, you know, we might give us some ideas for, for the future of where mobile experience design can go. Sure. And yeah, when I came to the MEX conference uh, six years ago, uh, I don't know if you realize this, I, I brought with me about seven different mobile devices. I was mortified that uh, airport security would prevent me from going through security. <laughs> I had a, a, a Palm device, a, at least one BlackBerry device, two or three iOS devices, plus an, and an iPad. And well, I, I forget think you would have been in very good company with the right, crowd right. in those days. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so I made a point, and uh, a lot of the founders made a point of constantly switching between devices over the course of a day or a week to make sure that we were experimenting with what different platforms made available and to not get entrenched in just in an iPhone way of doing things before it was even iOS um, or, or just in an Android or, or, or BlackBerry way of doing things. I think uh, rather than looking back nostalgically on a specific feature set or a specific form factor. What I miss about those days was that sense of energy and possibility and experimentation. And you had Matthias Duarte in WebOS doing things that were really inventive at the time, um, little things about the physicality of interaction or, or quasi-physical cues as to a, a, a feedback cues, um, little things like folded paper and water droplets and things like that of experimentation with different ways of incorporating software and hardware keyboards, um, different sorts of uh, device sensors. And um, there was, I think, a lot of experimentation and a lot of coalescing, and now there's a little bit more experimentation going on uh, with different types of uh, physical sensors. But really, there's been such a consolidation into not just on the software, the OS side and the, the software ecosystem, but in the hardware form factor as well. And uh, on Google side, them trying to exert more control and be more prescriptive about what a canonical Android experience should be and what a canonical Android device should be to support those experiences. That while the, cap the absolute set of capabilities, you're absolutely right, has, has grown tremendously from six or seven or eight years ago, I think the, the energy and enthusiasm around experimentation, um, we've lost a little bit of that because of this coalescing and then smaturation, which is probably inevitable in any technology change wave. And now, as I said, we're seeing it on the fringes with other ancillary or complementary or, or totally separate um, uh, technologies from wearables to uh, uh, augmented reality uh, headsets and goggles, things like that, um, to embedded devices. Yeah, um, so I think that that's exactly right. I mean, it's um, in some ways we've gone from this period where you had a very um, focused and concentrated set of innovations going on with in 
particular specific devices or individual platforms to perhaps a world now where actually that experimentation has become diffused across a whole range of different touch points in users' lives. And the touch points themselves have become more standardized. As you say, you know, Google is taking more control over what the Android experience should look like, regardless of whether that's happening on a Samsung device or an LG device or a Moto device or, or whatever it is. But um, the diversity of the touch points that users have access to now in their lives has increased considerably. And when that experimentation happens, it tends to be in interesting combinations of those things or app developers being able to tap into a range of things happening with those devices working in concert with each other, which uh, potentially, I think, leads to an even greater level of experimentation and innovation for the long term. But there does seem to have been a bit of a sort of lull period where we haven't, where that that sort of uh, individual concentrated innovation in single devices has dropped off, but uh, the more diffused type has not really uh, stepped up to the plate yet to uh, to, to make up for, um, you know, for, for the lost energy, as it were. Yeah. And I know that that sort of diffusion and concentration and diffusion and concentration and people's interactions with that um, in, in technology has been an area of, of interest to you and you've written quite a bit about it. you've written some very interesting things about it and it's interesting to, to me to see the maturation of these uh, um, form factors of the smartphone and the tablet and how they become almost part of now the expected texture of our lives both personally and in the built environment, you were talking, you had, you wrote that piece about the iPads at Newark Airport, for instance, and it's literally now part of the furniture, right? Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes not always in tremendously positive ways. I mean, perhaps right. I was feeling a little grumpy having uh, spent my, a few hours navigating the airport, but in the, the Newark example where these iPads had been placed literally as a physical barrier between you and the person that you were sitting opposite uh, at a cafe. It just seemed to be, you know, a really telling example of how technology can sometimes play that divisive role in users' lives if attention isn't paid to, well, going back to your point about the importance of architecture, about the importance of the overall system experience and the environment in which that's actually, uh, the, the users are actually going to be engaging with those kind of technologies. Right. And actually thinking about it now and talking with you about it now, the, uh, one thing that I really loved about my thought process and the thought processes of, of the industry as a whole back in those days was this real sense uh, of focus on the user context and all the different levels in which um, the, the surrounding, the, the factors surrounding a user's interaction with a technological system are so um, uh, definitive of the, the differences in user experience with one system versus another. And the, the, the newness of the, the handheld form factors drove a lot of really fresh and innovative thinking around that, including social and how the physical interaction with technology drives differences in social interactions where, you know, it used to be you sit down for a meeting and I open a laptop between us. There's now a physical barrier between us with the, the screen of the laptop. Or if we sit down around in a living room to fire up the switch and play it on the on the big screen TV, now the technology is the focus. Whereas you pull a phone out of your hand and out of your pocket and you glance at it and then uh, go on with your other social interactions, it is less obtrusive and less of a physical barrier. But now it's become kind of a, a competitor for uh, for your attention in a way, but physically and socially in a very different way dynamically than. Uh, you know, other form factors have been in the past. So it was disappointing to read about what you, you know, I, I shared your disappointment and how you described the, the way the iPads are set up at the airport as, again, reintroducing the technology as a physical barrier between me and the human next to me or across from me. Well, perhaps that's, as you say, something which has been a little bit lost in mm -hmm. how the, the mobile context has decreased in importance in, in the minds of people um, when they're designing these experiences, because I think now there is perhaps an assumption that the screens have such a hold on our attention mm -hmm. and have become so immersive that actually some of those concerns that perhaps were foremost in mind back in 2010 when you were starting Moto Labs about how is this going to fit into the context of you know, running for the train or you know, walking out of the door about to start your day and you know being on the move and I, I think often these days it's just now presumed that the screen will be uh, all-consuming for users and right. some of that is testament to the power of the, the, the design and how compelling 
uh, these devices have become in users' lives. But that's not necessarily a, a positive thing. Right. And uh, I gave a talk about this last year at our conference, the whole idea of engagement and how the industry as a whole has coalesced around this idea of engagement and measuring engagement through metrics in terms of how many seconds and minutes and how many touches in the app on the device um, at, at, at a time and trying to maximize those sorts of metrics. And for me, the goal has always been more, how does the app or how does this digital experience facilitate engagement with life as a whole, with other human beings, with my community, whether it's a college campus or my, the company that I work for. And so, you know, designing for quick bursty interactions, interstitial attention, snacking on things in a glanceable and actionable way rather than trying to consume the user's attention in the, the system that I'm creating. My goal has always been facilitating life through the, the mobile device and not consuming life in the mobile device. And so it's strange that this thing that there was so much hope that it would become this facilitator for breaking down human, you know, the barriers of human interaction and for facilitating certain types of interaction. It absolutely has done that in a disembodied way. Like, so it absolutely facilitates distant and uh, asynchronous and disembodied human interaction. But now it also becomes such a competitor for the focus and attention in the embodied human interaction. If I'm in a room with you, I can no longer be guaranteed of of the lion's share of your attention because you've got the screen, as you say, always there and, and consuming your attention. So does that inform the way you think about doing user feedback and, and satisfaction at Modo Labs? Because I guess you've got perhaps the advantage here in the sense that often the experiences which your platform is delivering are geared specifically towards supporting communities either you know mm -hmm. on a university campus or a, a corporate campus you know are you able to use a more um, diverse or balanced set of, of metrics to really understand what it means in users lives above and beyond just seeing how long people spend in the app or how many uh, you know times that they click through to certain things it's a, it's a great question and one of, I've been wrestling with and we've been talking about here in that it's a, the challenge is fundamentally we can't measure the sort of engagement that I talked about, engagement with the life of the community uh, as facilitated by the apps that we our customers can create. All that we can measure are the touches and taps and seconds spent and which screens are most popular, which actions are taken most often, which modules are favorited most often, and those sort of, which which messages are read the most immediately. Those are the sorts of things we can measure within our system. The measurements of whether those are effective in encouraging certain types of communal behavior and a greater sense of engagement with and connection to your community are things that we fundamentally cannot measure within our systems themselves. It has to be a collaboration with the institution doing offline things or measuring things outside like and then drawing the inferences to hopefully suggest causality like we sent this message this many users received it and this many users tapped on it and read it this many users tapped to sign up on or, you know for that event or or for more information about that event or tapped to see which shuttle was running to there and through a different system we measured this many people actually showed up at that event then maybe you can at the, at the institution level using a combination of our tools and the analytics uh, that we put in the, the customer's hands with other things that they're measuring in other ways, hopefully start to draw inferences of, are we being successful as a whole in driving certain types of engagement with communal life in the ways that we hope will better that, that communal life? Yeah, it's, um, it's a big challenge. I think it's one that a lot of organizations of different types are, are facing and perhaps particularly complex when you're talking about a platform with quite a wide distribution of customers in, in different areas. You know, it, it's hard enough if you are providing a single app as a company and trying to measure both the quantitative and the qualitative aspects of how that's impacting users' lives. But I can imagine it would be a tremendous challenge trying to do that in a, a structured way, at least, across you know, all of the different universities that you work with, all of the different companies in healthcare, in enterprise environments. You know, that that's just a scale of challenge of mixing quantitative and qualitative measures, which would make it pretty demanding for a design team. Absolutely. But I'll say this. I think everything that you described as a challenge is absolutely a challenge within a given customer organization. And we're thinking about and trying to figure out ways to make close the loop on, on that for a given organization. What's really becoming increasingly interesting for us at Moda Labs is we have, I think, certainly in higher ed, an unparalleled, unparalleled breadth 
of analytics aggregated across hundreds of higher ed customers. And I think in the coming year, we're going to be uh, looking at more and more and talking about more and more what sort of inferences can we draw across the industry as a whole or across the higher ed community as a whole. Um, what sorts of messages tend to drive the most response? What sorts of experiences within the app tend to drive the most use and under what conditions, whether it's time of year or time of day or in response to a particular sort of uh, activity going on in the life of the campus? And so trend analysis, not just within an organization, but across hundreds of organizations is something that we in higher ed at least are uniquely situated to do. And I think you'll see some exciting things come out of Moda Labs in the coming year and years around that. Well, that does sound very interesting. I'll be looking forward to, to hearing more as that develops. Perhaps that's something that you could feed back to the MEX community in some way, because I know there'll be lots of other people out there who will also be interested in uh, some of the things that you're trying in that area. I would love to. I'd love to be a continued part of this conversation with you, Merrick. Well, that sounds great. Um, now, outside of Modo Labs, I'm curious for you personally, you know, obviously you've spent a great deal of time working around mobile mobile apps and understanding the user experience of those but is there anything which you haven't yet had the chance to work on either in digital or another area of design which you're keen to try in the future sure uh, professionally i would love uh, to do more work in the peripheral complementary technologies things like wearables things like uh, the voice act the, the voice driven experiences through homepod and alexa and things like that um, we don't see the the direct cost benefit yes for uh, yet for us or our customers in those areas, but we're seeing more interest in that. And I look forward to opportunities to work in these complementary technological areas. Personally, my long term dream is to have a small house and a big wood shop and and build things out of wood and metal and get back to physical artifacts again, uh, which which I do miss. I miss the physicality of graphic design and packaging design and and print work, um, and that writ large. And getting back to kind of architecture at a, at a individual human scale, that is what furniture is. Um, so. That's my dream retirement. One, one day I'll get back to doing physical design like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's nice to have a, a bit of both in your life. You know, moving pixels around is one thing, but when you can have some actual sawdust on the floor, I think there's a, a unique value to that too. Yeah, I, I built a bed for my daughter last year and uh, hand cutting a mortise tenant joint for the first time in 20 years. And it was tremendously rewarding. And I, I look forward to having more time to do that one of these days. Well, I wish you all the best with that and with Modo Labs. And thank you very much indeed for taking the time to come on the show, Eric. It's been uh, great to catch up on this and I hope we'll stay in touch and hear more from you in the future. Eric, it's been a pleasure and it was a privilege. Thanks very much for having me on. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. And don't forget that if you want to follow up on anything that Eric and I talked about in that discussion, there are detailed show notes, which have got links to everything that we covered at mobileuserexperience.com, and you'll find them in the podcast section. Oh, and depending on when you're listening to this, you might also be interested in the next Mex Dining Club. So these are relaxed informal gatherings where we get together a bunch of designers, strategists, technologists from the MEX community to chat about experience design over some good food. So we had one in New York a few months ago. Uh, There's another one in London at the end of January. And the next one is on Tuesday, 13th of March. This is in London again at 6.30pm in the evening. Uh, So there are only 12 seats at the table for this particular edition of the Dining Club. But we've just had one person who's had to drop out at the last minute. So if you are free on Tuesday the 13th and you want to come along and meet some of fellow listeners to the podcast, drop me a line. It's designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com for email, and I will send you across an invite. So that's it for this edition. I'll be back with more soon. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.